DXC Top 5 podcast for the first week in December 2019. Just when you thought the running season was officially completely totally over and winter had begun and we could forget about running until next spring. Five more uh, fantastic stories this week. My name is Michael Doyle and I am joined by Andrew Cruikshank. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Andrew is with me in person, and as you can hear by the uh, various coffee orders being taken in the background, uh, Alex Sear, he is on location somewhere uh, in a train station in Windsor, Ontario, where he's escaping to visit some friends. Uh, Where are you at right now, Alex? I'm at a Tim's, uh, I think maybe the southernmost Tim Hortons in Canada, and I'm sitting in a corner just to try to make it as quiet as possible, but yeah, I'm... uh, Sipping on a coffee, hanging what's your, out here. What's your Tim nice Hortons? You or what's your Tim Hortons order? Are you a medium double double person, or are you uh, anti Canadian and you order something else? How is a medium double double a Canadian thing? Oh I'm come a, on, I'm a medium black, medium always black. medium black. You're, you're, you're tougher <laughs> than go, the rest if, of us. And if I go to McDonald's, it's a large black to uh, because of the caffeine content. There's more caffeine in a Tim Hortons cup than in a McDonald's cup. You heard it here first. Oh, you're all about that caffeine. Fun fact, yeah. Alec, Alex Sear didn't drink coffee until very recently. Fun mm-hmm. fact. Since last year, yeah. It's like taking up smoking as an adult. Why would you do that? <laughs> Not the same thing, I know, I know. But uh, yeah. I uh, I have a, an admission of, of guilt, perhaps. I hate Tim Hortons. Can't stand it. Don't like the coffee. I'm a coffee guy. Don't like Tim Hortons. Uh, the taste I, or just the brand? The the brand, the taste, the whole bit. I don't like that they cloak themselves in the Canadiana nationalism bullshit. I don't like it. I don't buy it. Uh, they're owned by a big multinational. It's totally fraudulent. There's my political hot take for the day, for the week for you. I'm I'm with you. It, it chased me the wrong way that Tim Hortons is, is what we're identified as, as Canadians. It's silly, and the coffee is garbage. Uh, I'll, I'll get truck stop coffee instead of Tim Hortons coffee. <laughs> Anyway, okay, so uh, on to this week's stories. We've got five good ones this week. We got uh, Saucony has come out with a next percent killer question mark. Uh, we've got an we've got an Olympic marathon course. We're going to chat about that, or half a course. Uh, we'll talk about the first half and what could be the second half and other things. A a study near and dear to my heart, which indicates that. The most important aspect of success, perhaps one of the most important aspects of success, is in fact failure. Uh, And a real weird doping story. But first, there was a 10,000 meter world record set this past weekend. Uh, Sorry, 10K world record set this weekend. Uh, And it was set by whom, uh, Alex? Yeah, so Joshua Chepigai of Uganda broke the previous record by six seconds. So his mark was 26.38. He ran that in Valencia. So Joshua Chepigai, the name may be a little bit familiar uh, to you if you saw the video of a, a Ugandan runner running on the Kampala World Cross Country Course two years ago, completely blowing up. He was first, and then he faded way back to 30th. Got to cut him some slack. He was only 20 back then. He's 23 years old now he was nominated for world athletics athlete of the year this year so yeah this guy's on a tear nice to see him turn it around from that video 
Yeah, he had like a huge year this year, like one of the all-timer years. He won World Cross Championship, so he's the World Cross Country Champion. That's a big title. Uh, he also world, won the gold medal at the World Championships in the 10,000 meters, so you can see a trend going here. And now he set the world record on the road in 10K. Andrew, um, is this somebody who could possibly become like a real, like a face and a name and a, mar- a, a, a marketing tool for running? I think we, we have to look at him as a real world beater. Uh, as he moves up with with the world record now in the 10k um, as well as the the 10,000 meter win in Doha and the world cross country win he's looking pretty impressive uh, so it makes you wonder whether he's going to eventually get to the same kind of level as a, a Mo Farah or a, a Bekele uh, he's certainly going to pose a threat to Farah if Farah is trying to come back for to the 10,000 at the Olympics next year but um, he's still way off i mean everyone's way off bekele's 10,000 meter track record of 26:17 so will he ever get to that level it's hard to say i don't know i mean one thing to note is uh what what shoes were on his feet when he ran the 10k the friggin vapor flies <laughs> the next percents were on his feet when he no ran surprise. this 10k world record so there's that there's that kind of asterisk next to it if you want to put an asterisk next to it i know some do some don't uh but obviously alex uh next year one of the big races to circle is that 10,000 meter final uh, between the, sh- the showdown, the throwdown between uh, Cheptegei and, uh, and Mo Farah and maybe others as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think um, that's going to be such a marquee event because you can cheer for both, right? It's kind of just the classic story, the newcomer versus the two time defending champion. I think it's going to suck for Farah if he tried to duck competition by by dropping uh, down from the marathon because he's got his work cut out for him either way. Absolutely. All right, moving on. Topic number two. We have our first real next percent killer, or do we? Uh, Andrew, tell us a little bit about Saucony's new shoe that's been announced in the last couple of days. Yeah, Saucony is planning on releasing the Endorphin Pro. So we've seen a couple others. There's the Carbon X from Hoka, and there's uh, been a few models out, nothing really official yet from some other or some of the other companies. So this is the the first one that's uh, really going after the Vaporflies with Nike. Um, and we've, we've seen a few athletes wear them, um, Stinson, uh, as well as Molly Huddle. Actually, Molly Huddle tweeted recently, she, she said she's pretty nervous about the Olympic trials because of the vapor flies, which is interesting considering she's a Saucony athlete and the Saucony shoes are coming out. So that doesn't actually put a whole lot of faith in the shoes, but we'll see. Maybe this is going to level the playing field. Hopefully, maybe not. Uh, Alex, um, I think one of the things that's really interesting about this is that Initially, there was a lot of talk about the carbon plate and the, you know, the idea of whether or not it was a spring in the Nike shoe. Uh, I think the the conversation is switching a little bit. What's what's your take on that in terms of like what you think the most important factor is with these kind of, uh, you know, the cheater shoes? Yeah, the cheater shoes. Um, I'm actually working on a story right now with a few Canadian athletes and asking them what it is they like about the Vaporfly. And there are two things that come out. Obviously, the carbon plate is one of them. But I think the one thing that people are forgetting about and that athletes seem to really like is the, the P-backs polymer, the type of foam that kind of surrounds those carbon fiber plates. So I guess what's to remember with this Saucony shoe coming out is that, yeah, 
there's some carbon in there, but we don't really know what the foam is. I don't know if they can totally replicate what Nike's doing. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be as simple as just injecting a carbon plate in there. So I kind of get what, what Molly Huddle is saying. Also, some athletes were talking about the configuration, where exactly the carbon plate is and the angle of the plate. So it's 200 bucks. There's carbon in there. Is it kind of a cheap alternative to the Vaporfly? I don't know. Yeah. What I think should what I think should happen is you should get an athlete or a few athletes do some studies with both of those shoes. Like get them on a treadmill and, and run a test with the Saucony shoe and then the Hoka shoe, then the Nike shoe. That'd be kinda hard to do because sponsorships would get in there, but I think that'd be something interesting to look at in the future. Well, I think that totally, I mean, my, my thinking with this and what I find really fascinating about this, where we're at with shoes right now is with the, the, the shoe wars of 2019, 2020, and they're going to rage on into the future, it seems, is that these smaller brands, these sort of dyed in the wool running brands like Saucony, New Balance, Brooks, obviously they're coming up with their, their response to the Nike shoe and this, this being the first real like pure total response because it does have P-backs in it. it. The midsole is made of P-backs. I don't know exactly what the balance is like and if it is comparable to the Zoom X and the Nike shoe. Uh, but it is going to come down to how you market this thing, how you convince uh, runners that this shoe should be trusted over the next percent shoe or equal to the next percent shoe. And Alex, I think you're nailing it right there by saying that like, do what Nike did, which is I'll, you leverage a little bit of science, get a get a third party, someone who has no skin in the game, a university, something along those lines, put it on a group of athletes' feet, and do the old-fashioned marketing trick of doing a side-by-side uh, comparison where it's like we ran X number of athletes in our shoe and we ran Y number of a- or X number of athletes in the competitor's shoe and our shoe performs, you know, as well or slightly better. And if they can produce that and they can do that, that's going to make a huge difference and move the needle for Saucony. So it remains to be seen if they will do that or if there's like any legal issues with doing that kind of side-by-side comparison, but they do it in other industries, right? Like, yeah. so. Yeah. It's just it's hard to do because, you know, for the company that loses out, it's a pretty risky thing to do to throw science in there and, and maybe come out of it with a bona fide shoe that's worse. Yeah, I know it would be it, it would be bad if it was like, well, we've got the three and a half percent shoe. It's like, well, then, you know, then it's over, right? Forget it. You're not buying it. Uh, I also wonder about the price point. I keep thinking like I think one of the things that Nike struck struck gold on is that just like. Why charge less when we can charge more? Make this a three hundred dollar shoe. Maybe not. Maybe not Saucony leading in with like a three hundred dollar US shoe, but like maybe make it two fifty, make it two forty, whatever the price of the the uh, the Nike shoe is, um, and go toe to toe with them. But I mean, they their people, their marketing people do all the research. I don't know what they've found, but maybe this is the sweet spot that they're targeting right now. We shall see. Comes out June twenty twenty. Um, It'll be fun to get a pair on your feet. They look pretty great. Um, I, I've always liked Saucony shoes. I think Saucony shoes uh, perform well. I think they have, they do great designs. They, uh, they've, they've had a great history, a great rich history. They've, they've made really good competition shoes. So it should be interesting to see how the shoe does. All right, moving on. Topic number three. Oh, man, it's like every week we get a doping topic, but this one is a real friggin weird one uh alex tell us about this uh story that's coming out of france regarding a steeplechaser 
So this is a story of Ophélie Claude Boxberger of France. She was a steepler, or she is a steepler, and she ran at the World Championships this fall. In the preliminary round, she tested positive um, with, I guess, was it, EPO. It was, it was EPO, yeah. yeah. It was it was EPO. Um, it was her A sample that tested positive after preliminary round. Later on, her mother's boyfriend admitted to having injected the EPO into Claude Boxberger while she was sleeping. So the claim is that there was EPO in her and she didn't know. That's crazy. Uh, Andrew, there's a weird detail. So we, we've, we read the, thank you to Alex for being, for being a a French speaker and French reader, uh, because he read, uh, the L'Equipe story, uh, coming out of France in French. So we could have total accuracy here. And Andrew, you've got a detail about this guy on her coaching staff that who is now her mother's boyfriend and also on staff. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, couple weird details I'd like to kind of parse out here um, and whether all of this is true it's it's almost hard to believe but the the mother's boyfriend whose name is Alan Flaccus my French pronunciation is probably very far off there but uh, he, he's yes uh, Claude Boxberger's um, mother's romantic partner um, and he was the one who injected her with the EPO can we also just start off with apparently he injected her while giving her a massage when she fell asleep um, which which just seems strange to begin with. And, and would you not notice like the pinprick of a needle or? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if I could sleep through an injection. Uh, yeah. Um, but even stranger, this uh, Flaccus, um, Claude Boxberger accused him of sexual assault uh, years before um, and then withdrew the charges and still allowed him to be part of her coaching team. And, and then started dating her mother. Yeah. Yeah, that's weird. And the one other strange thing that I, I saw mentioned about this was that um, Claude Boxberger has also been tied to um, Jean-Michel Serra, who's the head doctor for French athletics for the French Athletics Federation. Um, he's 56 years old and he's married, but supposedly Claude Boxberger and him have kind of been involved in a relationship. He's denied it. Uh, right. It's, okay. It's all very strange. So. Sounds like a messy situation going on in, with the French team. Um, well, keep an eye on this. Uh, see how that goes. That's a that's going to be one heck of a weird case for uh, the French anti-doping people and obviously WADA to unpack, especially going into the Olympics next year. I would assume, based on the caliber of her uh, performances in the past, that she would be considered for an Olympic team for representing France next year. So... Probably not going to hear the end of, uh, probably not heard the end of this story, this weird saga. We'll, yeah. we'll keep you updated if there's another twist or turn. I want the um, the mother's perspective on this. <laughs> oh boy. Next topic. <laughs> topic number four. We have ourselves a Olympic marathon course. Alex, tell us a little bit about uh, what's been decided for the Tokyo slash Sapporo uh, marathon Olympic course. So it's going to be in Sapporo. 
Sapporo is 800 kilometers north of Tokyo. So that's pretty far. Um, I think we talked about it in the previous podcast. There was debate on whether they were going to have it in Tokyo, but they decided to have it in Sapporo because it's going to be a bit cooler, is what people at least thought. I think they're expecting 23, 24 degrees around that range. So still pretty warm, but a bit cooler than the 27, 28 28 they were expecting in Tokyo. Um, They got the dates too. So the race walk um, all the race walk races will happen on the 6th and the 7th of August. And then the marathon happens. The women's marathon is on August 8th and it's early in the morning. I think it's at 7 AM over there, but it's nice for us North American, uh, viewers because that puts us on the night before. So the 8th is a Saturday and for us, it's going to be on the 7th and Friday at 5 PM. So Grab your beers, grab your Sapporo, and watch the marathon in Sapporo. So 5 p.m. will be uh, on Friday will be the women's marathon on the 7th for us. And on the 8th at 5 p.m. for us, uh, it's going to be the men's marathon. Andrew, why don't you tell us a little bit about what – okay, so first things first. Tell us a little bit about what the course is going to be like. And secondly, uh, we don't have a 42.195-kilometer course – we have what so far? We got 20 kilometers so far. That's not a marathon. <laughs> Despite being confirmed to, to being held in Sapporo, uh, they only have the first half of the course so far. It's going to start in Odori Park, uh, which is kind of in the, the main downtown area of Sapporo. And uh, they'll do a lap of that, which is 20 kilometers. It's kind of similar to the Champs de Mars, um, the, the park leading up to the Eiffel Tower in Paris. Um, kind of a gravel, gravelly type looking park so the main question is though why not just do two laps and then figure out the last little section because right now we just have 20 kilometers and no one can seem to agree on the second half i don't know if it's because they want to add in more hills or because right now i think it's it's a fairly flat course for what they have whereas tokyo i think was was expected to be a little hillier so it would play into people who are are really speed focused marathoners yeah, which, I mean, could produce a really fast and interesting marathon. Historically, the marathon uh, in the Olympics has not been the speediest of races, usually pretty tactical. Everyone's just trying to win a medal, not focusing so much on running the fastest race you possibly can. And uh, obviously, there's no pacers involved either. So, uh, yeah, there's there are mountains surrounding Sapporo, so they could go up into the mountains and make this really damn hard the second <laughs> half. Or, crazy thought... They could just go around that 20-kilometer loop again uh, and make it nice and easy for spectators, for uh, the media, for coverage of the race, uh, and also, obviously, in a sense, for the runners because it's a 20K loop is nice. It's not a 5K loop. I know that can be pretty boring and, and monotonous to go around a short loop like that, but if it's you only go around it once, it could make it interesting, and then you tack on a couple of K at the end somewhere in the city and to find a, a nice finishing or start, start finish area. Um, just took a quick look at the Hokkaido marathon, which apparently uses a big chunk of that, uh, that Odori park loop, uh, as its course. And we'll put a link to that in the, uh, in the newsletter that goes out this week, accompanying this podcast. So you'll be able to watch a video of some dude running, a whole his whole marathon with a gopro it's actually pretty good footage so you can get a good sense of how it's going to look or a big chunk of it's going to look 
be curious to see what the second half of this thing is going to look like, and we'll make sure we update it when we find out. Yeah, I guess the the only last thing too is the the fact of since it is going to be on the last day, will will the men make it back for the the closing ceremony? Oh yeah, right. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. Not the greatest planning. Anyway, moving on. Last topic for the week. A study out of Northwestern University in Chicago indicates that an essential prerequisite for success is what, Andrew? Failure, uh, ironically, which I've, uh, I've had a, a fair number of fails in my life and a fair number of, of screw-ups, and I, I, I'm surprised I'm not more successful then. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're still around. Yeah, still yeah around. that's true. Uh, not totally irrelevant. But it was an interesting study because the, the researchers took an analysis of 776,721 grant applications submitted to the National Institutes of Health over a 30-year period. They then also analyzed 46 years' worth of venture capital startup investments. And the strangest one, they analyzed 170,350 terrorist attacks between 1970 and 2017 to see how failure affected success. Yeah, that last one's real weird. I, and I read, I read in the study that they defined uh, success in terrorist attacks as fatalities, unfortunately. Uh, but I guess they're looking for big chunks of hard data with very clearly defined successes and failures. Um what was the what were the findings? I mean, they obviously they, they by the title of this this study or uh, of this article that we're re- referencing, which is from Nature. We're also reading a piece by Scientific American that kind of is a rewrite of the Nature story. Uh, that failure is an essential component, and Andrew, they also uh, the researchers are trying to build a model so they can really accurately predict uh, success when when you're going to have a success and how. Yeah, yeah, I think one of my uh, the better lines in the the Scientific America article is um, they essentially sum it up as the faster you fail, um, the the better chance you have of succeeding. Right. So, uh, Alex, how how can we apply this to running? I mean, I thought this was an interesting topic because I think running is a weird thing to think about in that unless you win every single time you race. Uh, it's very hard to define success and failure and particularly for like a recreational runner where you're competing against your own time and that sort of thing. So what are the big takeaways for you as, uh, from this sort of a study, uh, from a running perspective? Yeah. To me, the idea is kind of like smart persistence, not just trying a lot of things, but trying a lot of smart things. The way I see it is kind of like, it's kind of like a Darwinian survival of the fittest approach to like your running approaches. So I guess you could relate it to running in, in, in so far as a racing tactic, you know, you try a racing tactic. So you go out really, really fast. Um, it doesn't work. Okay. You take, you, you learn some stuff from it. Next time you come, okay, you try a, a bit, a bit slower. Maybe something doesn't work there. Maybe you got to find something in the middle, but the key is to not be afraid to try those first few races and fail and go back and try it again. I think another thing too is, is injury wise, right? You're facing an injury, you're doing some physiotherapy you're doing some exercises, you're doing some cross training, some stuff works, some stuff doesn't. It's really to separate the wheat from the chaff. When you come back, 
you take what's right, you notice things that aren't working, you notice some things are worse, and then you're not afraid to fail, but you try certain things. So I think the idea really is, is smart persistence, and that can be applied in a lot of aspects of running. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things about this study, uh, one of the, the takeaways that the researchers offered was, uh, first of all, as Andrew pointed out, rate of failure is really important. Uh, and that suggested that you don't leave uh, your attempts uh, to, with too much space between them because otherwise you're not able to figure out what you're doing wrong and make adjustments. So like, I don't know, if you're um, training for that big goal marathon, maybe you should race a few times during the season and attempt a few things and try to learn from your mistakes and take away what was successful so that you ultimately can have you know, huge success at the end of your season. And then the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and this is a quote uh, from the researchers, you have to figure out what worked and what didn't, and then focus on what needs to be improved instead of thrashing around and changing everything. Uh, the people who failed didn't necessarily work less uh, than those who succeeded. They could actually have worked more. It's just that they made more unnecessary changes. So the old adage of, uh, the definition of is an of an idiot is someone who tries the same thing over and over again and expects different results. Uh, Andrew, I I can relate to that. I think a lot of runners make that mistake <laughs> quite often. Um, but you you can do things kind of wildly, like where you you just keep doing the same damn thing over and over again, and you expect improvement and it never happens. Or the flip side is is that you don't see the improvement you want to see, so you just start you just destroy the approach and do it everything wildly differently uh, each each year or each season. Yeah, I think it's it's so easy for, for anyone listening to this podcast or, or who's read the study to, to think of it as, as so common sense. Um, of course, you, you learn from your failures. We've all, we've all been taught that. But it is the idea that it, it's very specific learning. It's very specific failure. When you fail, you, you hone in on a specific element and you see what you did wrong and then you have to correct that as opposed to, you know, if you had a bad race, that doesn't mean suddenly you change the amount of sleep you get and what you're eating and how your running stride uh, works, like your, your biomechanics, that kind of stuff. It's, it's focusing on very particular things and just trying to improve kind of one at a time. And But that's difficult too. That's easier said than done because as soon as you have a bad performance, it's easy to look back at many, many things that could be the factors. So I think to be able to achieve that fully, to understand what works and what doesn't, you need to be at it for a long time, which again, you know, is, is, is an argument for not being afraid of failure. If you're in it for a long time, you will fail many times. So it's a thing of persistence, smart persistence. So hopefully all this will be moot in about five or 10 years when these researchers actually do come up with a really accurate statistical model that can then then just be turned into an app and then like Strava will incorporate it into their uh, API. And then you'll just be able to like fire up Strava, you know, based on your, your, your training, your performances, it'll be like, yeah, with this next 10 K you've got a 96% chance of success <laughs> and then you'll run it. Uh, anyway, uh, that's it for us this week. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, uh, thexc.substack.com. It's completely free. We send out some great stuff every week. Uh, we had a great piece last week by new contributor Kayla Fenton, uh, which was a, a longer piece, uh, a personal essay, and also a historical essay at the same time. I thought it was great. 
and we got a lot of great feedback from that. Thank Kayla very much. And um, we'll have some more longer form pieces on weekends as well in the future. And uh, make sure to follow us on social media at the XCORG on uh, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook.com slash the XCORG. All right, Alex, is your coffee cold yet? Oh, it's done. It's long gone. <laughs> All right, good. So that was done in the time. This podcast was recorded in the time that it took, takes Alex here to drink a Tim Hortons coffee. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thanks, Alex. <laughs> Thank you. No problem.